Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Brusky and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action. And welcome to another beautiful week in Summary, Wisconsin. We are unfortunately without Rebecca Lynch this week. Um, we look forward to Rebecca's return. But we do have Robert Craig, our, politi- our political director, our executive director here at uh, Citizen Action. Robert, good to see you. Good to see you, director of everything. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and I should let our listeners know before we get started, we will have State Treasurer Sarah Godlewski later in the show for our What the Godlewski Does the State Treasurer Do? Actually, um, I think we're probably going to hear a little bit, maybe get a little response to the state budget, but also uh, she has a survey out, and I think we might be hearing a little bit about that. But we'll have uh, State Treasurer Godlewski on later. Robert, we got a number of things to talk about. It's been very busy. We're going to talk about health care, particularly uh, the Affordable Care Act Texas lawsuit. Oral arguments started this week, and we were involved in that. We'll talk more about that. Foxconn's in the news. And, well, it looks like the Republicans were not happy with Governor Evers' vetoes. We'll talk more about their response. And we've been saying it all along. We're ground zero. We are battleground Wisconsin uh, for the presidential. And uh, this week, we have four Democratic candidates here, and Trump is in town on Friday. Lots of stuff going on. Also, Robert will tell us more about the Green New Deal in Milwaukee. Robert, we have to talk. Uh, we're gonna. We'll start talking health care because um, it is not. It is. It is impossible to to under. I guess under underscore the concern we should have around the Affordable Care Act uh, in this lawsuit, even though most folks, if I'm correct, and just let me quickly set the stage for our listeners, uh, the Texas lawsuit, which Wisconsin was pulled from, thanks to Governor Evers and Josh Call, um, is is sort of the latest, greatest lawsuit uh, that essentially challenges the Affordable Care Act. Robert's talked about this before. Um, and the Trump administration and other folks are basically arguing if this if this thing wins, it throws out essentially the guts of the Affordable Care Act. But uh, huge issue, Robert, and uh, oral arguments started this week, and we got a bunch of state legislators involved in starting the pushback. Uh, tell us more. Tell our listeners more. Again, one, why should we care about this lawsuit? Is this... Most people tell us, oh, don't worry, it's going to be fine. This is kind of a ridiculous lawsuit. <laughs> uh, but uh, tell us more. And then tell us what, why state legislators are getting involved in uh, this Affordable Care Act fight. Absolutely, Matt. So this is, it's sort of like trying to kill the vampire, the monster in a movie. Uh, the attempt to repeal the Affordable Care Act keeps coming back, right? It's Freddy Krueger-like. Well, they had over, what, 50 attempts or however, however you quantify that. This is that. the third major case that's mm-hmm. probably going to the U.S. Supreme Court. And so, and they were rebuked by the voters, lost the House of Representatives, lost Governor Walker and other governors over their overreach on health care, their attempt to repeal the Affordable Care Act with no replacement. So now they're following a legal strategy, of course, to try to do the same empowered by uh, politicians in robes, also known as right-wing judges, that are going along very smartly with legal doctrines that were considered absurd by most uh, legal scholars and and experts when when the case was filed. And so let me say a little bit, Matt, about the basis of the case. 
because it's actually connected to the sabotage of the Affordable Care Act in the first place. Uh, when Justice Roberts made a probably fairly political decision not to rep not to strike down the Affordable Care Act, he chose not to find uh, that for the same reasons that the uh, that the democratically appointed uh, Supreme Court justices had found in upholding it. He had his novel theory that it, it, because it was a tax, um, it was constitutional. Income tax is the Thirteenth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. And he also found that the most progressive part that helped with racial equity the most, Medicaid expansion, could be struck down. It could be voluntary, even though there was no precedent for limiting the federal government's power to condition funding, in other words, for its own programs, like the safe. Hence, this is what Walker took advantage of, that, yes. that, that piece. And why we're having this debate now with Robin Voss and Tony Evers and still no Medicaid expansion in Wisconsin. So then during the, uh, the Ryan Congress with President Trump and McConnell in the Trump tax bill, in fact, they zeroed out the penalty for not having health insurance. Uh, that, of course, the reason for that from a sabotage standpoint is if fewer healthy people sign up, don't have an incentive, then it can crash the Affordable Care Act marketplace, which it hasn't done, though it's raised premiums. Uh, but then Texas followed by Wisconsin's the second plaintiff, Scott Walker and Brad Schimmel, uh, filed this lawsuit claiming if it's zero, if the penalty is zero, it's not a tax, and therefore it's unconstitutional. And originally, Texas had the extreme position, supported by Scott Walker and Brad Schimmel in Wisconsin, that this took out not just some provisions of the Affordable Care Act, some limited group, but the whole thing, everything, including pre-existing discrimination, all the subsidies to Ford insurance, all the requirements as to what constitutes good insurance, everything, all the popular things you know about. And that was not the position of the Department of Justice, even the early Trump administration. It was not the position of the Department of Justice under that radically famous left-wing attorney general, Jeff Sessions. But enter, this is like the horror movie, da-da-da-da, William Barr, the attorney for the president, excuse me, the attorney general of the United States, who has changed the pleading and now the U.S. And not only refusing to defend the law, which is the job of the Justice Department to defend federal laws, they are actually arguing that the entire Affordable Care Act should be repealed. Now it went to a it was already had one right wing judge, politician, and robes rule in favor of striking down the whole Affordable Care Act. It went to an appellate court this week on Tuesday, and the appellate it's a two judge three judge panel, two Republicans. And in the oral arguments, it looked like the Republican legislators thought these were great constitutional arguments. So it looks like they're going to strike it down. And that means it could go to the U.S. Supreme Court likely this next session and be struck down or not. It's, it's, a, it's one. There's one person. We know there's a 4-4 split leading into Justice Supreme Court, you know, Chief Justice Roberts uh, could be struck down. And so the reason we had a big press conference this week um, and Governor Evers has been talking about this as well very directly. In fact, he put out a fundraising email about the, the threat, is that the legislature could put in state law a whole bunch of the uh, protections of the Affordable Care Act. And in order to prevent uh, Wisconsin from losing all protection against pre-existing condition discrimination, to keep mental health parity, keep, uh, uh, to keep free preventive care, to uh, keep light, a ban on lifetime and annual limits or price discrimination for women and for, um, uh, for, for people who are older, the age tax, to prevent all that stuff, you could just put it in state law so it doesn't matter what the U.S. Supreme Court does. 
And so the call is that we now have an emergency the state legislature should respond to. But the big question, Matt, will Republicans try to protect uh, healthcare consumers across Wisconsin, 150,000 would lose coverage, 19 million nationally, 150,000 in Wisconsin, to, uh, to protect Wisconsin consumers, especially since they promised to take care of the pre-existing condition issue and have still not done it, despite the fact that that was Assembly Bill 1 and Senate Bill 1. So, folks, uh, this legislation doesn't exist yet, but it's going to, and as soon as it does, we will let you know, and we will, of course, want you to get involved, contact your legislators. We just can't let this issue go away. We need to keep talking about it, especially if it's under threat with these ridiculous lawsuits. And I think, Robert, you accurately point out we just can't trust <clears throat> the judicial system, politicians in robes, as you like to say. Um, Robert, i got to change the subject before we go to break because um, there's another topic we love to talk about because it is so atrocious, and that is Foxconn. The governor... Matt, uh, the governor met with reporters, I think it was CNBC earlier this week, uh, came out, and he announced that uh, he had uh, gone to Foxconn and they were going to only produce 1,500 jobs by next May. Supposed, this is well below what they were supposed to do. In fact, they were supposed to be at over 1,800 jobs by uh, the end of the summer. But more news. In addition, also, I believe the Foxconn had also described uh, somehow the idea that uh, we had, and I don't even know really, that we had any standards attached or the, uh, the, the ability to make any changes here in Wisconsin as a, as a big headache for the company. Robert, the Foxconn just, it's this thing, we're going to be talking about this forever. So... I think we need like a discounting formula because we knew what when Foxconn promises, what do they deliver? So when they say 1,500 jobs, do they really mean 1,500? Do they mean, you know, 200? And are they even really there? Um, I'm convinced that Foxconn was being kept alive simply for Donald Trump and for his reelection and for fear that a trade war with China will disadvantage Foxconn. Um, and so... Uh, literally, when Trump loses his reelection bid in 2020, Foxconn will cancel and leave Wisconsin. And at that point, the question is, we'll then have a big push for what we're going to do with all this land that we built on. And we're all of a sudden going to have a big demand that the state put in even more money to build a bunch of strip malls or whatever else that, that could be built there in that, that paved over farmland. Well, that's a, that's a great way to end this segment, Robert, predicting Foxconn will be gone. Gone, gone. No, that's, look, it makes perfect sense. With that, we got to take a break here at the Battleground Wisconsin where Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Um, we are going to switch gears a little bit here from talking about explicitly state-level politics and we have want to talk about what's again what's been going on at our border what's been going on with refugees last week we talked about the close the camps rally uh, that uh, we were involved in and our organizer uh, Lou Sosa had been involved in here in Milwaukee and uh, this week on Friday uh, there's going to be a number of events around the country and one of our members in the northwestern Wisconsin co-op and actually a member of the steering committee up there is helping organize a Lights for Liberty event in Eau Claire. And so, I, in, in Eau Claire, excuse me. <laughs> um, 
So I apologize. But um, so we're really, really happy uh, to have Mireya Sigala Valdez with us. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, well, first of all, we appreciate you taking the time, but could you tell our listeners, and we have a number of listeners in the Eau Claire area, a little bit about uh, the event uh, that you're organizing on Friday? Certainly. So Alights for Liberty is actually a national event. Uh, Alights for Liberty is a national organization, and it's really um, in solidarity to stand with the refugees, um, the asylum seekers, and then any detained immigrants, including, you know, women and children from all over the world. Um, And it's just really in solidarity to stand with them that we, you know, to continue that um, narrative of closing those camps, right? So um, in Eau Claire, we're actually having an event um, in at Phoenix Park at the Labyrinth. Um, It's free. It starts from 8, ends at 9.30. And um, if you're not able to join, then you can actually join in solidarity from your home, just lighting a candle outside. And so that's what we'll be doing. We'll be lighting candles. Um, I'll be a speaker. We'll have uh, a couple of other speakers, I believe, and and maybe a musical uh, performance as well. Uh, Maria, this is uh, Robert Craig. And uh, can you comment a little bit about the latest revelations Uh, not only what we're learning about these camps and how the kids are being treated who have been separated from their families, uh, but also after that, you know, this huge immigration sting that President Trump is threatening on Sunday. Uh, But it just seems like I think the whole country is becoming shocked by the revelations of what's going on in these internment camps. Sure. So I think like when you're not in, in, in tune or it's not in the public's eye as much as it is, it does become really shocking. But this is something that has been going on for quite some time, especially with this administration. So obviously people have been detained because we've had these um, uh, ICE and the detention centers um, for a while. But um, what's what's different with this administration is just the, the level of dehumanization that is going on with him. And then just to the extremes that he's taking it where he is um, using um, these individuals, these human beings as pawns in his political scheme. Um, so, yeah, it's really disturbing to see and hear what is going on in the detention camps. Um, and even more so to know that he's going to allegedly on Sunday is going to do a nationwide raid. Um, for us in Eau Claire, it is um, troublesome because we did have ICE come into our community in Eau Claire um, in September. So the 20th through the 24th, what I call, you know, a time of terror for us. Um, I had personal friends that were taken. I, I know families that were taken. Um, even in the Trumpolo area, Arcadia, Independence area, they were hugely affected. I know people down there that were um, also taken, one person who was taken and then released. Um, so it's something very real for us um, and something that we are preparing to combat um, because we do have a wonderful community of people who are willing to stand up against this tyranny. Maria, how do you... How do you think people in, in uh, Western Wisconsin are are reacting to this as this becomes more public? I mean, the president seems to think that this is all to his political advantage; that his base uh, basically has a bloodlust and will, will and and is is eager to see any kind of punishment dished out uh, to people different from themselves, people from who they see as as illegitimately coming to the United States. Of course, with no regard for any our role in creating horrendous conditions particularly in the in the in the uh in central america uh and 
so quite and 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 no regard for asylum law. But what? How do you feel like in Western Wisconsin? Uh, people outside of your community and that in the general public are beginning to think and respond to this. I think that um, it is unfortunate that uh, even in the Western community uh, here in Wisconsin, that Trump supporters are staunch supporters. Um, I think they, they truly believe that he is, you know, is doing what is in their eyes, the right thing to do. I think he empowers them to, um, to, live out their fears, right? So it's easy to make immigrants scapegoat, like you said, without some knowledge and history as to the destruction that this country has done since at least the 1920s, right? And worst of all, in the 1980s. And now that we've made them economically dependent on us, we've, we've made them, um, we've destroyed like their infrastructures, their um, authority, their government. We were involved in coups down there. We were involved in, in, in um, warfare, um, and providing um, and um, and murdering millions of people over there, and then sending MS-13 homegrown gang members from here back to their countries, um, and so I think that the, all of that is missed in the um, population that still, still strongly supports Trump. But I do see a lot of hope when you go out there and you see people defending, like people that may not be part of the of the um, of any organization or any leadership, but it's really amazing to see people use their privilege. Um, I've seen so many videos out there. I've heard so many people talking about it. Um, we, you know, we had a March last year and we had over 600 people attend that rally. Um, we had close to 200 people attend this year. So um, I think that people are just really, um, I think those who want to see him and believe the truth are actually seeing that. And then I think it's, it's just um, a matter of time between before I think that people really rise up again and do something against this. But I, I'm really hopeful. What I see is, is, uh, is people looking at these individuals as human beings and not as what our president describes them. Well, we really want to thank you for coming on, for organizing this event and for, Obviously, all the work you do um, in your community. Um, thank you. Thank you so much. And really hope the events Friday are extremely successful. I know there's one uh, in Wauwatosa also. So uh, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And just a reminder, you know, every little bit we do, um, you know, counts. And so even just a little candle in solidarity outside your house will make a huge difference and, and shows that you do stand for something that is um, truly remarkable when we, we join together as a country. All right, folks, that that's uh, that's a great, uh, great message to us. Get your candles out again. Uh, Eight o'clock uh, in, in Eau Claire. Uh, but if you want to also stand in solidarity, they're asking everyone at nine o'clock to have your get your candles out. So again, thank you, thank you, thank you so much, and we will uh, we look forward to a successful event, and hopefully we can start to change what's going on. Thank you, everyone. All right, you have a nice day. So, Robert, before we uh, take a break here, we got a couple minutes left. Um, Big news in Milwaukee this week, uh, Green New Deal for Milwaukee uh, Task Force passed the Common Council. Tell our listeners more. Well, it's great to see Milwaukee leading, as it has historically, uh, you know, decades ago, a true uh, coalition of white environmentalists and folks of color, especially African Americans, is pushing the city to actually plan to meet the, the the greenhouse gas targets we need to we need to make in order to prevent a global climate 
catastrophe. So the, the UN standards are 45% cut by 2030 and a 90, an 80% cut by 2050. A uh, number of other cities around the country doing it because Trump has pulled out of the Paris Climate Accords. But Milwaukee actually st naming a task force and Citizen Action, our coalition partners, Sierra Club, 350.org, and others have been working on this for some time. The labor movement is very involved and will be on the task force, the Milwaukee Area Labor Council. Uh, but combining that with the fact that Milwaukee has among the worst racial disparities in the country, and we've had a 40-year depression on the north side of Milwaukee, the African-American community. And to use the reconstruction of our whole economic model in Milwaukee to also be a way to open up opportunity for everyone left out and to truly create the kind of Milwaukee that we all believe in. Obviously, Milwaukee's disparities are Wisconsin's disparities, since the majority of the African-American population lives here in Milwaukee. And so uh, Council President Ashanti Hamilton uh, is the sponsor. And, uh, and it, there's going to be a county version, so it's going to be a city-county task force uh, sponsored by Supervisor Supreme Mora Makunde. And so this is the, the task force has very hard work to do, and Citizen Action staff member Raphael Smith will be on it. Actually, a couple coalition partners and uh, other members of Citizen Action will be on it, uh, with representing various constituencies. And so... This is exciting because if you, as scary as climate is, and it's very scary, it's an opportunity to intervene in this completely unfair rigged economy and to, and to, and to use our democratic government to set things up as they ought to be set up with true equity and opportunity for all. And so this is very exciting, as scary as the need for a, cl a climate conversion is. So we're going to talk, we'll talk more about this on another show. In fact, we'll have uh, Raphael on. Uh, as we move closer and we start to talk about what really needs to happen on this task force. Also, we may need to talk more when it moves through the county. But with that, we got to take a break. You're listening to Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. And it's that time of the month. We are joined by Citizen Action member and even more importantly, State Treasurer Sarah Godlewski. Sarah, how are you doing? It's good to be here, Matt. I mean, I feel like summer is finally in Wisconsin, so all is well after the July 4th holiday. Yeah, well, I you know, I missed your last uh, appearance. I was in Europe and uh, it was it was a great time, but I must I must say I got back just in time to uh, deal with the budget situation and um, obviously <laughs> Yeah, we, uh, you know, we talked about it last week. We made a, you know, a big push on health care, ba uh, badger care, a number of other things. Um, and included in that budget, obviously, there was, we, as we've talked with you about, um, there were some things that you had wanted in there as treasurer. But um, want to get your thoughts now that we're passed and Governor Evers has signed the budget, um, your thoughts on the, st on the state budget. Yeah, so, I mean, first of all, I think that we have to thank Governor Avers for what he was able to do with the veto pen because what the legislature gave him was no easy feat. It was clearly exactly Walker 2.0 with what they were trying to give him. Um, but despite that bill that got on his desk, I mean, I think there's really three things to point out. I mean, the first thing is that he was able, to the best of his ability, provide additional funding for public education, which is absolutely critical. He was also able to provide more funding for health care. 
and more funding for transportation, which were three things that he ran on. And Wisconsinites said that they agreed with the governor and wanted to see that funded. But, you know, that being said, able to figure out how to fund those, it was the way in which he was doing that. And so for me, the question was, well, are these things that are happening in a fiscally responsible way? And what I was so impressed about is he actually developed a budget that is more structurally sound than in the past. I mean, he literally cut expenditures by millions from what he was given. And on top of that, he gave a middle class tax cut, which is great. And so I think that is not an easy thing to do to make sure that you are cutting expenses, giving a tax cut to the middle class while funding for public service things that we care about. And the governor was um, was able to do that. So um, to me, I, um, I give him a round of applause for doing that. Now, look, does this budget hit all of our dreams? No. Of course it doesn't. But I think those are things that now we are going to be working on in these upcoming weeks and months is how can we leverage our executive powers and our executive authority to do what the legislature has failed to produce in this budget. So, Sarah, uh, this is Robert. So uh, you pointed out what the governor was able to do with his strong veto pad, though I see some legislators want to limit that because they don't have enough power in the legislature, apparently. But it seems to me, because you also pointed out that obviously there were limits to what the governor could do, uh, given the situation, that what distorted the whole process was the incredibly gerrymandered state assembly where Democrats won uh, almost 54 percent of the vote, but it produced a 66, I mean, a, yes, a, a 63 to 36 Republican majority. And we were told by multiple Republican state senators why would we why would we step out from our own party when Voss is just going to kill it with his supermajority in the assembly and he was taking particularly on Medicaid expansion this no way over his dead body hashtag never etc so it really feels like the gerrymandering that with the 2010 election essentially uh, helped cause this result because there was no negotiating with Robin Voss because of this illegitimate majority he has in the assembly very undemocratic majority yeah, and I think to even, Robert, take it one step further, I mean, not only is the ger gerrymandering an absolute just, uh, it's astounding what they can do with democracy and the way that they have manipulated gerrymandering, but the impact that that has had on the Joint Finance Committee. I mean, if you think about it, the way the Constitution and the way democracy has always worked is to provide these three branches of government power to ensure that democracy is represented. And what has happened in Wisconsin is because of the gerrymandering, the Joint Finance Committee has literally become almost a de facto executive because the chairs of Joint Finance can almost have veto power in what is funded and what is not funded because they can control all of that when that's not their role. Their role is not to do those kind of things. Um, and so I think it's really unfortunate that, um, and it's not democratic, the way that the Joint Finance Committee can actually serve almost in this veto power way and what they can control with the budget and not, um, which is just absolutely ridiculous. Now that the budget is passed, right, not, you know, look, we talked about it at length last week about some of 
some of the disappointments. But, you know, look, the reality is we have work to do in 2020, and we'll, we'll set about that. But we want to we wanna, uh, get from you sort of where you're going next steps. And, and in particular, I know I think I just saw this week that you have a survey out. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that and why that's so important? Yeah, so, you know, despite uh, the results of the budget, which, by the way, um, you know, just to remind those listeners that our budget was literally cut by the Republicans. Um, That's why I say have... this is the worst budget ever. <laughs> fund, right. fund the treasurer's office. Worst budget ever. <laughs> right. So, so, sorry. To your point, Matt, to uh, remind people that, you know, the governor can't add language, right? He can only delete it when they just gave us a couple of words in the budget, uh, which equals less than $20,000 a year for everything that we need to run a statewide office. Um, and, oh, by the way, we have over $12 million in our checking account. Um, it's, uh, it's just a reminder that democracy is clearly broken in Wisconsin. But. That being said, we are still in executive office and we still have executive authority. And one of the things that we talked about a lot on the campaign trail and we continue to hear from Wisconsinites is the impact of the student loan crisis um, and their ability to, you know, really live in the state of Wisconsin, raise a family. I mean, even the impact it's having on seniors. I mean, I literally talked to um, a lovely woman who recently retired a couple years ago from Western Wisconsin, and she co-signed one of those Parent PLUS loans for her grandson. And it's um, he was having problems paying for it. And long story short is they were coming after her Social Security benefits. Um, and we are finding that more and more seniors now are being impacted um, by student loan debt, and they are coming after Social Security and even their disability payments. Um, and a way to balance this, which I think is absolutely wrong. So uh, we have are starting to get uh, to look at our task force. And to start with that, I think one of the things that we think is really important is before we start coming up with all sorts of solutions, we want to make sure we understand some of the most critical problems Wisconsinites are facing with the student loan crisis, ranging from consumer protection to, of course, financing their student loan debt to maybe tax incentives and public-private partnerships. Um, and so we're going to start traveling the state doing this listening tour. But to kick it off, Matt, what you saw on our Facebook page and what we just recently launched on our website is we um, are asking Wisconsinites to share their stories um, and kind of what their student loan debt looks like what they are experiencing, um, and kind of as our first way. So we launched a poll, and we encourage people to go to our Facebook page um, and to share their story, uh, let us know what they're dealing with. Um, because the only way, as my mom jokes, you know, God gave you two ears and one mouth. And I think the best way for us to really come up with pragmatic solutions is to listen and make sure we understand the problems. So We'll have a link to that, folks, uh, if you have any issues on that and you can help, please fill out that survey and get that information back. Before you go, and we got about a minute and a half left, um, you also have another task force that I actually think is super important around retirement, and it's uh, something that I think could become a big, a real big issue. Could you just, before you go, let, remind folks about that? So we are also getting ready to 
launch um, our retirement task force. And that's going to start looking at what are some of the tools and solutions around uh, providing public retirement? Because we know more than half of Wisconsinites have less than $3,000 saved. And look, like, I mean, I think about my situation. I mean, we're always just trying to basically keep up. You know, you've got expenses with kids and with your car and with your home. And sometimes the last thing you can even think about is putting together, you know, a wet money away for retirement. And a lot of employers are unable to provide that benefit because of the costs or the size of their business. And so what states have been doing across the country is take a step to say, look, we know that this is a burden on small business in Wisconsin, but it's a critical means for people to get ahead and start saving. So they've provided um, an opportunity for people to start saving and to uh, make returns on their money so they can have a strong and secure retirement. And so that's exactly what our goal is, is what's the best way we can provide Wisconsinites with a secure retirement moving forward. Well, we look forward to talking more about that, but we're out of time. We'll have to make it for the next episode of What the Gudluski Does the State Treasurer Do? You're, we, we, as we have found out, you're so busy, we can't, we can never get through an episode without uh, uh, having stuff we have to leave off. But we want to thank you, uh, State Treasurer Gudluski, for joining us. And Matt, Robert, always a pleasure to talk to you both. So thanks for having me. All right. You have a great day. You too. Yep. Bye. We got to take a break here at Citizen Action. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to Battleground, Wisconsin. Robert, um, Rebecca's not with us this week, so we're not going to do a deep dive into a presidential candidate this week. But we are going to talk about the presidential race. Um, because and, and you're losing presidential candidates. Eric Swalwell has pulled out. We won't get to Eric Swalwell. Uh, our producer doesn't know who that is. We will not need, get to do Congress. More than the Swalwell. producer doesn't know. I think he he was famous for changing diapers on a YouTube video as part of his campaign. But I cannot believe the guy did not get traction. I just I don't get it. There's just not enough qualified he candidates. He also did out the there. changing of the guard bit that got that got that caught Biden in the first debate. But he is no longer a presidential candidate. Well, we miss him already. Um, <laughs> I don't think so. Uh, look, so we've been talking about the presidential race. We're going to continue talking about it. Uh, the big thing is, right, Wisconsin is one of the most critical states. Um, we've even made the argument it might be the most important state to winning uh, for any Democrat. Uh, well, this week we're feeling that um, we have... Uh, four Democratic presidential primary contenders in town uh, with the LULAC convention, which um, uh, is got, what, 15,000, 20,000 people here. It's uh, a, a big event. And our president... His Highness. Our president, Donald Trump, is here raising money. So, Robert, um, any any uh, any further thoughts? Right, like this is. I mean, and and we've got the convention coming here uh, next year. So, uh, Milwaukee's a hotbed right now for presidential politics, and it's not like this every year. Uh, again, I remind you, uh, we did not have a visit from Hillary Clinton uh, post uh, convention. So, very 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 new environment this this year. And there's more national press about the whole election potentially coming down to Wisconsin. Uh, LULAC didn't come to Milwaukee for nothing. Obviously, we have a Latino committee, but also they knew this was the battleground of battleground states. 
And let's face it, we won the governor's race, then we lost that state Supreme Court race, right? So it, it continues to be this battleground. The suburbs have moved slightly Democratic. The, the right-wing infrastructure is, is gearing up for a huge canvas to try to stop the bleeding there and reverse it. Uh, obviously, we need record turnout, as usual, in Milwaukee and Madison. And then there's the battleground, which is all the swing areas across the state of Wisconsin. You cannot ignore rural. You cannot ignore suburban. You cannot uh, ignore urban in, in Wisconsin. In fact, and Milwaukee is a much smaller percentage of the state's population than, say, the Twin Cities are for, uh, for, for Minnesota or Chicago area is for Illinois. And so you really do have to do it across the state in all of these ver the various regions and ver various uh, metro areas of the state. I think one of the things, too, that uh, this week highlights or underscores um, is, and we, we talked about it as it related to the debate, is how both the Latino community and and just Spanish language is increasingly becoming a part of the mainstream, and we're and and so having this convention here this week and having this great response of candidates coming, and put, and that they chose to come here in Milwaukee, right in Wisconsin, which has a obviously like a lot of other places a very growing uh, Latino population that's going to be centrally important to winning this battleground especially if you talk about it's been so so close you know we work on the assumption that that population grows grows every day right and 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 we need to it has it has to be central to creating a progressive and wisconsin post the debates we have a, a, a closer to first tier latino candidate julian castro yes. who did extremely well in the debate somewhat at Beto's expense, yeah. and is running on a very dramatic position. That is, we make crossing the border a misdemeanor. Yes. And uh, that's pushing the envelope, and uh, Trump thinks he's licking his chops on this because he thinks that the American people are as cruel and dehumanizing as he is. Hence, we talked about in an earlier segment, yeah. the planning of the mass raids and, and what he's doing to separated children in our internment camps. Yeah, no, I mean, it. look, it. this is a very different race because of all of this dynamic. And I think for the first time, I, I at least I'm feeling confident that um, our politicians are going to have a lot more courage on this issue going into the presidential, and really they need to take on Trump. Uh, whereas I think a lot of times on immigration, uh, we've seen a lot of duck and cover uh, in presidential races on this issue, particularly from the Democratic side. And I, I just, I hope because of what Trump is doing, that it is morally demanding uh, more out of our presidential candidates and all candidates to talk about how we have to change course. This is, a, this is absolutely immoral. And by the way, a lot of this also goes back to the fact that we have never actually really addressed the a comprehensive immigration reform, right, which is fundamentally important. And usually the pundits and the campaign professionals they wave their finger, just like on Medicare for All. No, 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 you'll hurt yourself in the general if you say those things. But it's actually perfect because they're forced because of the presence of, of, of Castro in the race and how much the Democratic base is enraged and appalled and embarrassed by what's going on and have feel sympathy for the kids and the families who have been driven out of Central America, partly by our own foreign policy and economic policies, trade agreements and our our banana republic imperialism, right, uh, during the Cold War and up to present times. Uh, but now that they have to take a stronger position, now that Julian Castro is literally creating a, 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 a you know, really a strong 
position on the on the on on the very progressive end of this issue, they'll have no choice. The political consultants to once the, because the Democratic nominee will have to have taken much stronger positions to actually do the work of figuring out how to get through to the American people. We won't get to Trump's base, but all the swing voters that this is out of step with the whole history of this country, that this has been a welcoming country. It's been, the, it's been the nation of immigrants, and that's its strength. Diversity is its strength. It always has been. And that this is, this is offensive and un-American. And so they'll have to make that case. They won't be able to do the usual dodgeball thing, as you were pointing yeah. out, that they like to do on immigration and other hot-button issues. So, yeah, this presidential race is going to continue to heat up. Again, uh, we're expecting Rebecca will be back next week, and we hope to continue to dive in and talk more about another one of the candidates going forward. And one surprise is the fundraising numbers, Matt. I don't know if you had a chance to take a look at them, that, uh, you know, Biden is not the top fundraiser. You know, yeah. who's the top fundraiser is Mayor Pete, Mayor of Pete. all people. Who would have ever thought that a uh, feisty mayor from South Bend would be a fundraising demon? I wonder, is is he taking Wall Street money? Well, there are only two candidates taking uh, uh, lobbyist money. Uh, yeah. From from federal lo- congressional lobbyists, those are Mayor Pete, the number one <laughs> fundraiser, and the number two fundraiser, so Joe Biden. <laughs> but what's really interesting is is that Joe Biden is claiming he isn't, but then he's taking it through other mechanisms like a pack, a leadership pack. So in other words, and then but Elizabeth Warren is in third in fundraising. Bernie Sanders is still doing very well. Bernie still has a well-dolled fundraiser operation. It's just the others do too, yeah. and they're all fairly close. I mean, Mayor Pete's at twenty-four million for the for the quarter, and Elizabeth Warren's at nineteen, and then and Bernie at eighteen, and then uh, it's probably too late to her debate performance. But obviously, uh, Kamala Harris is moving up as well. But she's in she's in fifth place in that group. But you have a lot of fundraising going on on the Democratic side. And Mayor Pete now, today, put out his racial equity plan, of all things, 18 pages long. And so when would you, would you have had that four years ago or six years ago? So there's actually a direct appeal to the African-American vote. Whether you believe Mayor Pete or not, that's fascinating. So before we go, um, I want to, I'm going to, Break news here. At least it's not really news, but just want to. It's the first time we've talked about it here on the podcast related to the presidential. Um, and we'll have more details. We'll talk in, uh, uh, about this more as we get closer. But um, we have mentioned that our national network, People's Action, is very interested in the presidential race and very interested in helping shape the agenda, what we're talking about. And, and, and you know, Robert, you just mentioned it, trying to move. Uh, the agenda to the left, or at least like try to raise issues that have been kind of drowned out in the past that we think are critical to building a a, a new movement that can can govern in this country. Um, so we are doing a series of, um, I guess you would call them. Uh, they're they're not. I, I don't know if they're debates per se, but. They're going to be like debates where uh, we're going to bring the presidential, Democratic presidential candidates together to respond to our platform, our, our People's Action platform um, in Iowa. And People's Iowa. Action is our national network yep. that Citizen Action is a part of. Uh, in Iowa at Des Moines on September 21st um, is going to be 
one of these events, and we are going to be getting uh, folks from Wisconsin to go. And, and so if this sounds like something you would be interested, we're hoping to have over 5,000 folks in Iowa uh, for a very large and uh, hopefully raucous and fun uh, uh, forum that um, we also, I, I believe, there'll be uh, media coverage of. But we'll have more on that later. But please, if that's something that interests you, uh, put uh, September 21st on your calendar. We'll have transportation uh, news around that as we move later. But, Robert, we're going to uh, bring this uh, Battleground podcast to a close. Uh, we want to thank our producer, Brian Wildridge, who makes the podcast happen every week. Uh, it is a challenge to do this every week and to have that kind of commitment and to edit because uh, not obviously uh, we're not perfect uh, speakers and so Brian does a lot of work and we really want to thank him again for all the work he puts in uh, to, to make the podcast happen but with that we're going to wrap it up again we're Citizen Action you can find us at citizenactionwi.org we'll see you next week